0: morning. It's a privilege to be here this morning and see all of you and to bring the word in Steve's absence. And uh, you know, I was tempted, last time I preached through a whole book, I was tempted to do two. I was going to do 2nd and 3rd John, and so that way Steve can never top me, but uh, I decided to give him a break. I'm only going to do three short verses this morning. And today actually marks two months away from Genesis, uh move to Canada, so I couldn't imagine a better way to spend it than here with you guys. If you guys could open to Matthew 13, we're going to be looking at verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we come to the fountain of your word. And I'm thankful that it's a fountain that never runs dry because we are thirsty. We come with baggage, we come with problems, we come with sin. And I thank you that you don't ask us to get rid of any of that before we come to you. But Lord, you want to deal with it. You want us to see how your gospel, how... Christ on the cross is the answer. That he is now resurrected king and we could come to your word knowing that your spirit will show up and will feed us and will nourish us and will give us hope for today and tomorrow and the coming days. I thank you, Lord, that you did not set out to save a perfect people but a broken people. And that's who our represented. Please, let this message uh, be used. Let it be clear. And that we would walk away encouraged and challenged. In Jesus' name, amen. I would guess that when everyone heard me read the passage today, that one of the following po- thoughts popped into your head. Wow, that's short. Can he really fill 35 minutes with that? Yeah, I probably could, but I don't think I'm going to. So expect shorter than 35 minutes. You might have thought, what is the kingdom of heaven anyway? Hopefully we're going to scratch the surface on that. You might have thought, that seems pretty simple. We give everything we have for the kingdom of heaven, which is an invaluable treasure or pearl. Maybe you're being honest and you said, what does it look like to give everything I have? Do I really do that? And it leaves you feeling guilty. Well, I want to challenge you to think about this parable in another light today. A light that does not leave you feeling guilty that you are not like the man in the parable. Well, to do this, it takes some time to set up the context for the book of Matthew, the context for how we understand the kingdom of heaven, and the way that Jesus uses parables. So, first, why preach from Matthew? Well, it's pretty cool. Matthew is actually like a biblical apologetic for Jesus being the Son of God and the Messiah, and it was specifically written to a Jewish audience. You see, in the early church, there were these people that were called Judaizers, and these Judaizers insisted that everyone who becomes a Christian must follow the old covenant laws. They taught that belief in Jesus was not enough, but that circumcision was required for salvation, and that a non-Jewish person must first become a Jewish proselyte, and then they could become a Christian. So in essence, they were, sharing, they were preaching more than grace alone. In the local church or churches that Matthew was writing to, they were doubting because of these Judaizers whether Christ really was the King Messiah that was promised. And all throughout his narrative, Matthew decides to make his argument from the Old Testament scriptures themselves, using these fulfillment statements as a defense to Christ as heir to David's throne. I can imagine Matthew writing this book his, his narrative with all the Old Testament scrolls laid out in front of him as he uses over 60 of them to prove that Jesus is the Christ. And by doing this, Matthew saying, guys, Jesus is, is the Messiah. Look, in him all the Jewish prophecy is fulfilled. And Matthew also would have had influence as he wrote these things because he had a profound understanding of the Old Testament as a well-educated Jewish man, but also because he was with Jesus the entire time as one of the 12 disciples. Matthew, as a Jew, also wrote in a Jewish style. It was a very structured style. And it had a focal point in the center of the narrative, and that focal point was chapter 13. And this would help his Jewish audience to read the narrative in a way that makes the most sense to them. And the emphasis of his narrative is, here is your king, the son of David, and this is what his kingdom looks like. And then Matthew's application revolves around that same emphasis, and that's, you are the king's gathered people, his kingdom on earth, the king's emissaries. Now, we're not an the original audience of this book, but we are indeed living as the king's gathered people today, his kingdom on earth, his emissaries. So the book of Matthew has a lot to say to us. The text that we're going to look at today is Matthew 13:44 through 46. And there's a phrase in here that we see dozens of times throughout the book of Matthew, and that's the kingdom of heaven. We also see the kingdom of God, which is used in a very similar way. And the use of these expressions is significant because these Jews Matthew was writing to were expecting and longing for the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. So what is it? What is the kingdom of heaven? What does Matthew mean? What does Jesus mean? Well, what would the Jews have been picturing? Think about this. The Jews would have been picturing a kingdom similar to the kingdom during the reign of Solomon. A great king. Wealth. No enemies to battle. Only Jews. They were hoping for this again. Only hoping for a kingdom that would last forever, because Solomon's did not last forever. But this isn't how it's defined or used in Matthew as some sort of earthly kingdom exclusive to Jews on earth. In fact, Matthew makes a point of showing that it is everything but their Jewish understanding of the kingdom of heaven. But how do we picture the kingdom of heaven? At face value, if we're being honest, when we think about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, what do we picture? Heaven, right? Most of us probably get this picture of heaven in our heads. Maybe we picture a throne with Jesus on it. Maybe a city uh, no evil or problems, filled with all all followers of Jesus. Now, that's not completely wrong, but it's only a fraction of how it's used or defined in Matthew. The kingdom of heaven that has come in the Lord Jesus is radically different from the way that you and I naturally think and act, and different from the way that we structure human society. It's unexpected. It's shocking and it's upside down to human sensibilities. The unexpected and radical nature of the kingdom is why Jesus spends so much time trying to explain what the kingdom of heaven is like, but why so seldom people understand. Think about Jesus' life and ministry. The parables of the kingdom paint pictures for us where debtors are freely forgiven, where the smallest seed produces the largest tree, and where the last-come workers receive the same pay, the same reward. Jesus' model of life shows open-armed compassion for the downcast, the touching of the leper, the exalting of the lowly child, the welcoming of the Gentile, and the listening ear for the blind outcast beggars. As king of the universe, Jesus enters Jerusalem not on a war horse or a golden chariot, but riding humbly on the foal of a donkey. As king of all, he willingly rides into the city where nails will soon hang him naked on a cross in the scorching sun. As this king instructs us, we learn that the one who wants to be first should not exercise an overbearing leadership style, but should become the slave of all. And the one who is blessed by God with material wealth should set it aside to follow Christ. The one who wants to save his life must, in fact, die. Such is the radical nature of the vision of the kingdom that Jesus gives. And then, all presumptions of this kingdom are overturned, especially because of the monumental reality of the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And that's the reality brought out in the parable we're looking at today. Something we have to keep in mind is that when the word refers to God's kingdom, in almost Always refers to his reign, his rule, his sovereignty, and his people, but not to the realm in which it's exercised. Paul also says in Romans 14 that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Another neat thing is Matthew, specifically over every other gospel writer, uses the term church interchangeably with the kingdom of heaven. He does this in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, and he does this to get a point across to the Jews that he's writing to, that God's coming kingdom is not built on human wisdom or human principles, but on God's character and nature, and it has nothing to do with a location or a certain ethnicity, but a redeemed people gathering together. And that's what Matthew wants us to see about the kingdom. Like I said, Matthew 13 is at the center of the book and it focuses on parables of the king and his kingdom with a special statement given by Matthew in accordance with his whole argument of the book. And this special statement is verses 34 and 35. We're going to read that. And it also answers the question, why use parables? Verse 34 and 35 says, All these things Jesus said to the crowd in parables... Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will, utter, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. These are Matthew's words. He says, I want to show you that Jesus is fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecy, and in this case, with the use of parables. He's fulfilling prophecy by using parables. And he says that these parables reveal what has been hidden Since the beginning of time. And what they do, what these parables do, is they hide truth from enemies who don't accept the gospel. But thankfully, they reveal truth to those who do desire forgiveness. And there are three types of parables that we see in Matthew parable sayings, parable stories, and comparison parables. And Matthew 13 is a compilation of these comparison parables, with the exception of one, and that's the parable of the sower at the beginning. When it comes to parables, something we must understand is that they never violate natural order. They're things that actually happen or could happen. They're not fairy tales. Simply put, parables are word pictures to help us understand the gospel. Something else important to remember remember is that the parables are from the viewpoint of the one telling the parable. In this case, Jesus. It's the king's view of his kingdom. What the king did to gather his people, they describe the nature of his kingdom and his rule. There's seven parables in chapter 13. Something interesting is that the first three are for the world. For any listener, the last four are exclusive parables for the chosen. Matthew wants his audience to know this. Some of Jesus' messages were exclusive to his followers. And the parables that we're going to go over today, verses 44 and 46, are for the chosen. They're told privately inside of the house. And right before these parables, what Jesus actually does is he privately explains the parable of the wheat and weeds to the disciples. He tells them what it means. And this explanation he gives right before our parables today is going to serve as a tool for interpreting the parables to follow. It's given specifically for those 12. 12. These two parables have an identical interpretation and meaning. And what we know about repetition in the Bible, if there's repetition, it means that we're really supposed to get that point. Jesus really wanted us to get the point that he's making through these parables. So we're going to read these parables once again, verses 44 and 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So, who's the man? Who's the merchant? What's the treasure? What's the pearl? Well, here's the popular interpretation. Ready? Jesus Christ is the treasure and the pearl of great price. The sinner is the one who seeks. And when he finds Jesus Christ and knows that he's the truth, it's worth giving up everything that he might acquire salvation. Really? That's what it means? Now, I have a problem with that interpretation because, first of all, back in thir- verse 38, when Jesus explained the parable of the wheat and weeds, he says that the field is the world. I can't purchase that. I can't purchase the world. In addition, in verse 37, Jesus says that the man in the parable is himself. It's the son of man. We must use this interpretation given by Christ as we look at these two parables. Okay, so let's break down this popular interpretation. Jesus is the treasure and the sinner is seeking Christ. Let's start with the obvious fact. Jesus is not hidden. He's probably the best known figure in all of human history. He did not hide when he was on earth, and his true followers do not hide him from the lost. So, he's not hidden. Why would he be hidden in a field? That doesn't fit. Number two, the sinner does not seek God. I know it might feel that way from a human standpoint, but the Bible says that there are none who seek God, and there is no one who is righteous. No, not one. Now, why would Jesus say otherwise about his kingdom? That doesn't fit. A sinner seeking God is almost as ridiculous as going to the beach and seeing a guy with a metal detector on his zero-gravity chair and just using his metal detector like this as he's reclining, right? Do you think that this man is going to find treasure? No, no more does a sinner seek God than, a man, than that man sitting on that chair is seeking treasure. Rarely do people find treasure unless they're pursuing it. Scriptures say that all we like sheep have gone astray. And Matthew specifically later on in chapter 20 records a story about a man who wanted to have salvation, who wanted to follow Jesus. But Jesus said, "Go and sell all your possessions, then you will have treasure in heaven." But what did he do? He went away sad. He failed to give his possessions away. Matthew wanted to record this story, the story of this man because he knew This is not possible. You cannot seek the treasure. So that interpretation doesn't fit. Number three, salvation can't be purchased, can it? The last time I checked, which was today, salvation is a free gift. It's not of works. It's a free gift. You believe, and he gives it to you. You don't earn it. And what's cool is the scriptures even say that even your faith, even your belief is a gift from God. It was handed to you by God. Doesn't fit. Number four, if we could purchase it, what do you and I have of any worth that we could sell to get him? Well, you know, I'm a pretty good. No, don't even go there. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags, man is bankrupt and helpless. What could we sell to purchase salvation? So to sum it up, this treasure is, cannot be Jesus and the seeker cannot be man. So what is the interpretation? According to Scripture, what is the king's treasure in heaven? People are treasure. Psalm 135, verse 4, Daniel nine twenty-three. other verses talk about his people as his treasure. So what this parable is, is it's a word picture of Jesus Christ who came down from heaven and gave everything. He gave it all to buy the world and to get the treasure. And the treasure is you and I. It doesn't mean that we have some special intrinsic value, but we have redeemed value. You see, something only becomes valuable when someone wants it. We don't have value in and of of ourselves. We have value because Christ placed value on us because he was going to die for us. We are called the bride of Christ, and we better believe that he highly values his bride. When Jen and I left our ceremony for our wedding and driving to our reception, we were driving in a borrowed car. It was like a 67 Corvette, I think, with rear-wheel drive. I've never driven a rear-wheel drive car, and it happened to be pouring So here I am with my bride in this rear-wheel drive car. I'm slipping all over the place, and the windshield wiper stopped working halfway in the middle of the windshield. I went into Jeff Gordon mode, and I was like, this woman is not getting hurt. She is my bride. I'm going to protect her all the way to our reception. How much more does Jesus love his bride? This parable is a picture of the Savior seeking the sinner, not the sinner seeking the Savior. That fits. And it's also along the lines of another parable in Matthew. Jesus spoke about a man who had a hundred sheep, and one sheep went astray, and he didn't go after it. He said, I have have a good 99 here. I'm not going to go. No. He left the 99 and went seeking the one lost sheep. Jesus said that he came to seek and save that which was lost. Now that fits the parable. But also, it still leaves us with some questions. Why is the treasure hidden? Why is the treasure hidden? Sin and Satan. Ever since man left the Garden of Eden, we have been in a broken relationship with God and away from his presence. Satan tries to keep us hidden. Our sin tries to keep us hidden. We try to keep us hidden. And hidden treasure, guys, it unfortunately cannot find itself. I've never seen buried treasure start digging itself out. Christ came to the right place. He came to the place where the treasure was, the world. Another question we might ask is, why does he rehide the treasure? Do you ever think about that? Why does he rehide the treasure? Well, if the field had not been purchased, he would have no right to the treasure. He didn't sneak away with the treasure like a thief, but he got it the right way. He wanted to purchase the whole field so that the treasure was truly his. And I can't help but think that the treasure was just too big for this guy to carry. The scriptures say that the bride of Christ is like a multitude that no one can number. So I imagine that the treasure in the parable was also too big to carry. But fortunately, one day it will be seen, this multitude that no one can number, this treasure of Christ. But he re-hid the treasure to get it the right way. You might also ask, how does he buy the field? Well, it's pretty obvious. He sells all that he had. And it's easy to breeze past it. Oh, of course, he sold all that he had. Think about that. Say I told you that under this building, under this gym, was treasure of incomparable value. And you trusted me. Um, Now, you couldn't get that treasure without ripping up this gym, and therefore the gym needed to be yours. So you'd have to buy this building, and this is not a cheap building. Now some of you might not care, whatever, I don't care about the treasure, but a lot of you would say, I'm going to sell all that I can, I got to take out all my loans, whatever I have to do, because there's something under this gym that is going to pay off big time. But unless it pays off, this is a picture of your demise. Selling all that you have is not a pretty picture. That means, especially if you had a family, you're going to die. You have nothing. You're going to become homeless. You're going to become hungry. Jesus gives everything that he has. But what does he have? He doesn't have some bank account or a lot of earthly treasure. He has his life. So what is giving everything he has? His life. Now, giving his life, dying to get treasure, would be pretty pointless unless he knew he was going to come back from the dead, right? Jesus knew that the resurrection was essential to getting his treasure. The resurrection is essential to him getting us. Praise God that he rose. He sold all that he had, guys, to get the treasure, not the field. The field was just part of getting the treasure. Jesus isn't on a mission to restore and redeem this entire earth or everyone on the earth. But to take his treasure to a new earth. Something else is that earth is not a natural place for treasure. That's why it's treasure. It's not common. It almost seems like it doesn't belong. It's so beautiful. That's why he had to buy us to bring us somewhere better. And most importantly, that don't forget that he did it with joy. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he had to buy that treasure. He didn't do it with regret. He didn't do it with doubt. The writer of Hebrews says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Joy enduring the cross? It doesn't seem to go together, but it does because he came knowing that he would get his treasure. What a neat picture of the gospel. That parable is just beautiful. So, what about the parable of the pearl? This parable has an identical interpretation but there's something unique about the illustration in this parable, and it has to do with how a pearl is formed. Precious gems are usually mined, right, and cut and polished, whether it's rubies or diamonds or sapphires, but not a pearl. That's not how a pearl is formed. The pearl is actually a result of an injury. It was a result of an organism dealing with an irritation. What happens is a little piece of dirt or bacteria works its way into the shell of an oyster, And it irritates it. The oyster can't get it out. So he responds by sending out this produced serum called nacre. And it covers that little piece of dirt with this layer of nacre. And then it covers it with another and then another layer and another layer until the pearl is formed over time. It's a response of an organism to the irritation that got inside of it. Now to me, that's a beautiful illustration of us. We are a piece of dirt covered in the righteousness of Christ. That's the pearl, a piece of dirt covered in something beautiful. The irritation of sin that has been covered by the sinlessness and perfection of Christ, and that is us. That is why we're like the pearl of great value, because we have been covered in his righteousness because he came to buy us. He gave everything that he has, and now he owns us. But notice that neither of these parables talk about or focus on what happened after this man made the purchase. He gets this treasure, he gets the pearl, but what what happens next? It doesn't seem like a complete story. Well, Jesus wanted us to see just a specific aspect of the kingdom that focused on what he did to redeem his people. What the king did to become king of his kingdom. He gave it all. He didn't want us to understand every aspect about the kingdom, but specifically his sacrifice. And the Jews needed to know this because no earthly king that they knew of, they never saw a king do something quite like that. They've only seen kings take and take and rise to more power and wealth. But here we have a king in a kingdom where this king emptied himself of his power and wealth to purchase what he valued most. Which was people for his kingdom. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And this is a paradigm shift for the Jews. They're starting to understand oh, that's what the kingdom is like. It's not like what we understand. And it's also beautiful because the very next parable after these two talks about how this kingdom is made up of all types of people as it describes this net that pulls in all all these different types of fish. And Matthew wants them to see, guys, my message is about one man's sacrifice for all types of peoples. Not just Jews, but Gentiles too. That is what the kingdom of heaven, that is who the kingdom of heaven is going to be made up of. And this is why, because he gave it all. So let's wrap it up. When it comes to the gospel, the emphasis is never on the ability of the seeker or on the value that men place on the gospel, but on the one who gave it all for us. When it comes to the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the emphasis is never on the ability of the seeker or the value that we can place on the gospel, but on Christ. So I want you to ask yourself these four questions in reflection on these parables. The first question, will I be part of the treasure? Kind of a hard question to ask yourself knowing that faith is a gift, but will I be part of this treasure? Will you stop seeking treasure yourself, whether that's earthly treasure or trying to seek God and realize that you need to be found by Christ first? He joyfully paid for your sin. He knew all your sin. The sin that we will all go on to commit this week, He knew He was going to pay for it. And He still called you treasure because you're made in His image for Him. You're a treasure made specifically for Him. We're declared treasure. We don't have to try to be treasure. Don't try to be more holy. Be holy because you already are holy. You already are treasure. Will I be part of the treasure? Second question. Do I treat other believers like treasure? Do I treat other believers like treasure? Do you think that you're more valuable to Jesus than someone else? And that The answer to that question might be reflected in how you're treating them or thinking about them. If you're at enmity with other believers or have bitter thoughts or judgmental thoughts, you think you're better treasure. You're not. You're equal treasure. Treat other believers like treasure. If Christ values them, we need to value them, even if it's hard. And it's cool because treasure is actually more stunning when it's next to more treasure. If I said go in this room and find one box of treasure in this room and go and find 20 boxes, you're going to go to the 20 boxes, right? Right? So much treasure. We need each other. We're more beautiful. We're more effective when we're next to each other. Third question. Will I seek more treasure on the king's behalf? This is a more appropriate application than trying to seek Christ. It's trying to seek other treasure. Because in a monarchy, the king's people work for him. If you are in the king's kingdom, you work for him. Your life is dedicated to serving him. So, being part of the king's kingdom, we're emissaries to King Jesus, to all nations. That's why Matthew ends with Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Go and make disciples of all nations. This is the king's charge to his people. Go, find more treasure, make more disciples. Why? Because I have authority as king. I'm giving authority to you to go out and do it, and I'm going to be with you. So go and find potential treasure for him and with him. You do not go alone. That's hard to think about because there's a lot of people out there that aren't saved that don't seem like treasure because we don't know that they're treasure yet. Christ has yet to redeem them, has yet to change their lives. But go out and seek them because you were once that treasure that didn't seem like treasure. Last question. Do I understand that I do not belong here? Your treasure that's out of place. Your treasure that's waiting for a better home. Are you longing for a king and a kingdom on this earth other than Jesus? Are you longing for a perfect president, a perfect state senator, a perfect boss? What are you longing for? You're out of place. Don't expect to feel like you fit in or that everything's perfect. Long for your future dwelling place where you're going to be valued by Christ for an eternity. But until then, know that you're going to be put on display here as treasure for a world in need of grace. Alongside a people in need of grace. As a sinner in need of grace. So understand that as treasure, as Christ's treasure, we don't belong here. Long for a better home, but until then, pursue other treasure for Christ with each other. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, it's such a humbling reality to me that you you call us treasure. That seems so out of whack. We should call you treasure, and you are treasure. But God, we were treasure first to you. We were treasure because we were made in your image. We were treasure because you sent your Son despite how Many thousands of years passed by where all man did was rebel. You sent your son as a man to seek and save that which was lost. Thank you for coming to the right place. Thank you for taking on flesh. And thank you that you did not just establish an earthly kingdom, but you established a heavenly kingdom by giving it all and by rising again. And Lord, you are the risen king with all authority. And we want to honor you as that. And so God, help us now to obey you as a king joyfully, because you did it joyfully for us. You gave it all for us, and so let us go out and find other treasure, even when it's hard. Knowing that the more treasure we be a part in we take part in finding, the more treasure that we will see alongside us in heaven for eternity. In Christ's name, amen.